a baseball game, a day in a park with friends and family, fishing in a remote stream, work, travels, providing for loved ones, or heading out for adventures. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. The original guide to men's health is presented by the Washington State Urology Society to help take you through the steps necessary to get the most out of life. If you have invested in a retirement plan for your future, why not invest in your body? After all, it makes better sense to retire healthy and enjoy your future. These podcasts are a guide for how to take care of yourself. If you take care of your car and maintain it, why not do the same for your personal machine, your body? If you know you should but haven't yet, the information in these podcasts contains some easy recommendations for where, when, and how to get started. Follow the podcast as we explore men's health with renowned experts and embark on a journey towards better health. Welcome to this episode of the Original Guide to Men's Health. Today we'll be exploring sexually transmitted diseases, STDs for short, with Dr. Margot Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is an infectious disease expert who practices at Virginia Mason Medical Center and Clinics here in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Schwartz attended the Johns Hopkins Medical School and did her internship and residency in internal medicine at the University of Washington. She then did her fellowship in infectious disease at the University of Washington. She is board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine and also has subspecialty board by the American Board of Internal Medicine in infectious disease. Welcome, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you. So for our listeners, we want to cover the gamut of infectious disease and uh, included, we'll talk about HIV, though HIV sometimes is not always an infectious disease of an STD type. It is sometimes acquired through non-sexual contact. So our STD talk today in the infectious disease world of STDs or sexually transmitted disease will be those that are acquired through sexual contact. So there are many and we can start wherever you like and uh, work through uh, what signs and symptoms and diagnosis and treatment? Of sexually transmitted infections, they, in men, they can usually be characterized by either genital ulcers or discharge from the penis or burning from the penis or urethra or burning with urination or rectal symptoms. The other things that we sometimes see in patients are genital sores or ulcers that can hurt or not hurt. And the other place where people can have symptoms from sexually transmitted infections is in the throat. Generally, when we're talking about sexually transmitted diseases, we're talking about those that are acquired through sexual transmission. So historically, one of the oldest known to the history of mankind was syphilis, characterized by painless ulcers, if it's early syphilis, or it can be a rash all over the body if it's secondary syphilis, which is a intermediate stage, or in later stages as syphilis goes untreated, it can cause a whole host of symptoms, including neurologic symptoms. So that's a very late stage. Very late stage. The other thing we often see with syphilis is no symptoms at all. 
So it's important to do screening for syphilis because we can pick it up before somebody has any symptoms. So typically, you know, we're just using syphilis as the introduction, but a lot of uh, sexually transmitted diseases travel together. So when somebody presents with a concern, either they had a uh, encounter that was risk behavior, and we'll talk about that, and or they have a lesion they're concerned about, they don't just get checked for that one sexually transmitted disease. They'll generally get screened for multiple ones. Correct. Usually we take the opportunity, if somebody has, has taken the time to come to clinic, to screen them for many STDs, which could be blood tests, urine tests, throat tests, rectal tests, or other uh, swabs of other sites if they have an ulcer or a skin sore there. So for going back to syphilis, you can swab an active ulcer or is so, it all blood tests? Uh, it's not all blood tests, though that's often the quickest test. There are tests where one can get a sample from the ulcer and look at it under the microscope, but it's a very specialized microscope that is used for dark field examination. So while that may be available at a syphilis center or a public health clinic that sees a lot of syphilis, most regular doctor's offices won't have that. Blood tests or just how it looks mm -hmm. may lead to treatment on the day of the clinic visit. And there is treatment. There is treatment for all of the, the sexually transmitted infections that we'll talk about, there's treatment. Some Good. of it's curative and some of it is suppressive. Okay. So um, next in line would be gonorrhea, GC. A little bit about symptoms for gonorrhea. Gonorrhea causes a urethritis in men. So it can cause a drip from the penis. Usually a bit more of a, a yellow or symptomatic drip than with some other sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia. It's often a little more pus in the drip with, with gonorrhea. But it's important to remember with gonorrhea or with the other sexually transmitted diseases that it's not just in the urethra or the penis where we see it. It really depends on where, at which sites the patient has exposure. So if they were performing oral sex, we want to make sure we screen their throat. Or if they received rectal sex, if someone else had their penis in the rectum, that we screen the rectum because there's good data out there that a lot of people go to the office of their provider and they might not share all the different sites where they had sexual exposure. And if we don't screen the sites where there was exposure, we might miss the infection. Great point. So it's important, first of all, to try to give your practitioner as much information so that you can be diagnosed appropriately. And for those who are healthcare practitioners, to not just assume there was only one potential site of exposure. Right, and to not be shy about asking the questions and having the conversations. Okay, so uh, gonorrhea manifests if it is in the urethra as a discharge with usually some burning with urination, uh, urgency maybe, but you know something's different. And the discharge can show up in the underwear uh, sometimes it's very visible just looking. It's fairly uh, abundant. If it's in the throat, are there symptoms? Sometimes there's symptoms of a sore throat, but oftentimes there are no symptoms as well. So it's important to screen people if they have risk behaviors, even if they have no symptoms. And rectal, are there symptoms? Discharge or 
It can be discharge. It can be pain. Those are the most common ones. Okay. And then after treatment, it's important to go back and get retested to prove that you've eradicated the disease or not? Correct. About three months later, it's important to have follow-up testing because if one partner's treated but others aren't, people can get reinfected. Okay. So it's, it's both important to uh, first treat these infections when we find them, to not have sex for about a week after treatment so that the person isn't re-exposed, to treat the partners and then to get follow-up testing. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So it's just not the individual being treated, but you don't want to be passing it back and forth and back and forth, or it's a never-ending cycle. Correct. So if there was a reliable partner you could find, you want to make sure that they're aware and they get treatment. Correct. And, and there there are some uh, newer guidelines for expedited partner treatment where the um, prescription can be given to give to the partner. Right now, there are guidelines to do that for female partners of male patients if the female's not having any symptoms. If the partner is a male because of the high incidence of coexistent HIV or other sexually transmitted diseases, right now, those protocols don't involve expedited partner treatment for the male's partners but getting those partners into clinic to get tested and treated. And then the other reason to go back and check and make sure uh, there's been adequate eradication is there are some resistant strains. There are. I think I read that there's a significant resistant strain in Thailand. Well, there's now resistance with gonorrhea that initially we saw some of the more resistant strains in, in Asia, but we're seeing those here. strains here as well. And so the gonorrhea treatment guidelines have really changed over the years, we're back to using shots for cases and now using a shot plus a pill for cases of gonorrhea because of the increasing resistance. And then there's no uh, skin manifestation with gonorrhea. In general, no, unless somebody has a disseminated or widespread gonococcal infection. If gonorrhea goes untreated or certain patients might have more risk factors, the gonorrhea can actually get into their bloodstream and infect their joints. And those patients can have fevers and also some, some characteristic skin lesions. Interesting. Another common STD is chlamydia. Chlamydia for men can manifest again as a chlamydia urethritis with burning, what we call dysuria, perhaps some urinary changes and the discharge is a little different, as you said, from the gonorrhea, but... It's often a little bit whiter than the, the discharge with gonorrhea. And again, patients can have no symptoms at all, but they could be passing on the chlamydia to their partners. And like gonorrhea, patients can also have rectal infections or throat infections uh, or eye infections with gonorrhea or chlamydia. Now, it used to be uh, that you could only get a a diagnosis of gonorrhea and chlamydia through a urethral swab. And of course, everybody was concerned about having something put in the penis and, or the urethra in a female. Now there's some urine tests that can be done. There are urine tests that can be done and there, um, there are also different techniques for the testing where we, um, many years ago, we're doing mainly cultures. Now we're doing more uh, nucleic acid amplification 
tests, which is looking at DNA of the various organisms. And they're much more sensitive tests, meaning they can pick up the test, pick up the organism when it's there a much higher percentage of the time. So they're very accurate tests. So uh, some patients have had negative urine DNA, t- DNA tests, but still feel they're symptomatic. So we still have to look. They're fairly reliable. They're fairly reliable. Well, they're also, they're very sensitive. So if the infection is there, we're very likely to pick it up. Whereas with some of the older culture techniques, not only did they take longer, but often the infection was there, but the test or the culture test would miss it. Any rules for the urine collection for, say, chlamydia? Like not have just recently voided? Or, I mean, what do you tell somebody? When so usually, if they, uh, best if they haven't voided in a couple of hours. And the other thing that's different from a urine collection when you're looking for urinary tract infection is when you're looking for gonorrhea or chlamydia, you want the urine from the first part of the stream, the first bit of urine that comes out. Whereas when you're looking for a urinary tract infection, usually you discard the first bit of urine and then you collect the middle urine that comes out. And the uh, chlamydial test for throat and rectal is a swab? It's a swab and a DNA-based test uh, with the caveat that the chlamydia tests aren't actually approved in the throat, though some providers still do them in that site, but it doesn't have an official licensure approval to use in the throat. But both tests can be used in the rectum. And again, looking at uh, adequacy of treatment, there are resistant chlamydial strains, so you do want to go get retested after. When would somebody go back? Similar to gonorrhea, it's three months okay. for and repeat testing. We also want to have partners treated. Correct. And make certain that both have refrained during treatment Correct. so it's not passing back and forth. Now, in a overall prevention strategy, so far we've talked about syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Condoms be the best for prevention? Yes. Condoms still work. Not everybody accepts condom use, and it's important to ask patients about condom use and and discuss it, but it is one of the best ways to to prevent transmission of these sexually transmitted infections. If a patient asks and says, uh, well, while I'm being treated, can I use a condom and have sex? Best to wait a week. Still wait. Yes. Because they're not foolproof. Correct. They're not 100%. Right. Then we move to looking at, I'm going to go to something that's a little more rare, but still gives a urethral discharge in men and their chlamydia and gonorrhea may be negative, but they still have a thin discharge. And this is urea plasma. I don't know if I absolutely put that as an STD, but I think it can be classified that way. Yeah, the, the urea plasma data have They've been less clear over the years as to how much of a cause of urethritis it really is. The, there are some uh, data that suggest it can definitely be a cause of one's first episode of urethritis, so the, the, or the first episode of urea plasma. The first time you have this infection, it can cause urethritis, but the organism can be present and not clear that that's a cause of ongoing urethritis. Another organism that's become much more in the forefront of urethritis is mycoplasma genitalium, which is somewhat similar to the the urea plasma organisms. And it's 
now thought with more recent data that that can cause 15 to 30 percent of urethritis and accounts for more of the patients who come back to your clinic after they've not responded to standard treatment, that the mycoplasma, among other things like trichomonas, is an important organism to consider in treating urethritis. So in the um, spectrum of STDs, there is a test for mycoplasma? There is a test that was just approved last summer for mycoplasma. Typically, would that be in the first round of screening when somebody comes in with discharge? Generally not. Okay. They would do tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia and treat, and then often test for the mycoplasma if somebody wasn't responding to treatment. So somebody, say, comes in with a discharge, some urinary symptoms, they get the DNA test for the urine, chlamydia is negative, gonorrhea is negative, done blood work for syphilis because we screen everything, probably also screen for HIV. Uh, would people be treated empirically or would, if those tests come back negative, would they say, well, no, you, you're not infected with that, now we have to look? So if somebody comes in with symptoms that are obviously urethritis, we would treat them on the spot even okay. before we had test the, back. The culture. Okay, so that patient's instructed to come back if symptoms aren't better and resolved within at least a couple of weeks. They're, they're definitely coming back in three months for follow-up. Mm -hmm. But they should come back much sooner, sooner if they're still not feeling well. Right, so they still have symptoms, still have discharge. It's been seven to 10 days. That's where we now look and go, well, we have to look for some of the rarer issues like mycoplasma and, and trichomonas. Okay, and trichomonas is a little different in that we see that by a urine test, yes? Uh, yes, well, for uh, it's, it's a little different in women and men. In women, you can test the discharge and there are newer techniques that are much more sensitive than the old wet mount microscopic techniques where we look for the, the organism. Um, the tricky part with men is that the, the DNA-based tests, like, like tests that we use uh, with nucleic acid amplification for gonorrhea and chlamydia, is approved for women, and it's not uh, approved for men. So it's a, it's a good vaginal test. It's not a good uh, urethral test or urine test. So sometimes for men, we wind up empirically treating uh, for trichomonas if the patient's not getting better. Okay. Again, I don't think there are skin manifestations for a mycoplasma or for the trichomonas. Not for trichomonas unless someone has so much discharge that it's irritating, uh, irritating the, the skin. And for mycoplasma in general, not. Not. Okay, now moving on to other STDs that would be pretty common and really difficult sometimes, be something that HPV, human papillomavirus, would cause. And we're looking here for skin lesions, but they're not always present. Okay. So this has always been difficult for urologists as patients go, do I have HPV, human papillomavirus? For instance, a guy would come in the clinic and say that his significant other female on her pap smear was told she had HPV. Do I have it? You look and you don't see anything. So let's go through what human papillomavirus is and just kind of take everybody listening through that a little bit. So with the 
HPV, in, unless there's a lesion on a man, it is hard to diagnose and they're not spe specific tests that we would generally do. The One of the most important things about HPV is vaccinating because these HPV viruses and certain strains of the HPV, especially the, the 16 and 18 strain can cause cervical cancer in women and also cause uh, some rectal cancers in, in men. So it's important to look for these and women have had much more long established screening for these types of cancers with pap smears and now they can do H uh, HPV testing. For men, the screening is in general more for symptoms if they have warts the one thing I would add to that is some people will do anal pap smears on high-risk men, especially men who are having, uh, receiving anal sex. And um, there are some screening programs um, specifically for anal cancers that some centers are doing uh, here in Seattle and in other cities where uh, men get a high-resolution anoscopy to uh, screen for anal cancers which can often be HPV related. And you brought up a good point when you said wart, that a lot of people refer to HPV as venereal warts. Um, in men, they're manifested if they're raised as does look like a wart. Now there can be other skin lesions on the penis, so it's important to go to somebody who knows how to diagnose an HPV infection. Um, there were, I remember, breakdown of some HPV that were called flat lesions. So, with good magnification, sometimes you can see these things. But again, going back to the scenario where somebody says their partner had an abnormal pap smear and they have nothing that you can see on the penis, they're rare urethral implants, but those men generally had something on the skin that was carried down the urethra. Mm -hmm. It's rare, I don't even know if I've ever seen a case where there was only urethral HPV. It can happen, but I, you know, I think the most important thing here is if you see a lesion, then address it. Yeah. For men, it's hard to address it without a lesion. And one of the most important tools we have available now is immunization. And the HPV vaccine in um, adolescents and young adults has been shown to decrease cervical cancer in, uh, in women and decrease transmission of the virus. Uh, they've recently, so the, the vaccine was really um, approved up to age 26, initially in women, and then they added young men, and recently got approved up to age uh, 46. Oh, nice. Uh, there, it, it's not a blanket indication for everybody, but certain risk groups to continue uh, immunization against HPV. And that's a, a series? It's a series in general of three shots for the nine-valent vaccine, though, if a adolescent really starts on time and starts early, often they'll give just two shots and it's still immunogenic. Good. Moving on to another rare suspect that would be STD uh, causing uh, lesions. The Of genital ulcers, there are, you know, the most common genital ulcer in the United States is herpes. That's the most common genital ulcer that we see. So uh, those are ulcers that can hurt and they can recur. 
the one other type of painful genital ulcer is chancroid, um, which has had a resurgence in certain areas, but at, again, here in the Northwest, we're, we're not seeing much of that. In other parts of the world, they certainly see more chancroid. And then there's some types of genital ulcers that don't hurt. So the classic one is uh, syphilis. Non-painful. Correct. Now I had I was going to get to herpes because that is obviously a very 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 common lesion, and there being two main displays of herpes, people would always think the oral versus the genital. Is there a crossover? So we're going to have a long discussion about herpes for everybody because people have a lot of questions about that. If I have one, can I get the other? Can I give somebody this? And so we'll cover all that. Let's go to herpes now and, and just break down a little bit about herpes simplex one and two and where we are with that. Genital herpes can be either HSV1 or HSV2. And, and as I just mentioned, the classic is a ulcer that can hurt. Um, sometimes they just itch. They don't always hurt but they can be uh, irritating. They usually last several days. Often someone will have an outbreak that keeps coming back in the same spot, and that's pretty characteristic of herpes. And they will scab over on their own in most cases, especially if someone has a good immune system. Um, but treatment can help shorten the duration and decrease the transmission. And uh, the tricky part with herpes, like other viral uh, sexually transmitted infections, is that they're not curable, but we can suppress them and control them. And the other uh, part for patients to know is that a lot of people have herpes without knowing it, and they can transmit herpes without knowing it because their bodies can shed the virus and pass it on to another person, even when they're not having an outbreak. So... Let's break down the oral herpes. Somebody has a typical blister around the oral cavity. Is that something that can be transmitted to the genitals? Yes. So um, classically, the, the herpes type 1 has caused, caused the oral uh, cold sores, typically. But if someone has oral sex, they can clearly pass it on to another person. And so the rates of genital herpes that are caused by herpes type 1 uh, rather than herpes type 2 are, are likely higher than we have appreciated in the past. And then of the uh, herpetic outbreaks that we see, we're talking about this vesicle that can occur, this lesion on, that's painful on the penis, but it also can occur in the rectum? It can occur uh, on the genitals, because that skin, the genital skin and the oral um, mucosa is, is more susceptible to it, but it can occur on the butt cheek or um, really anywhere on the, the body, though much more likely on the, the genitals in the rectum or in the mouth. And some patients for their first herpetic outbreak do manifest more of a syndrome with fever. They can be sicker, they can have fever, uh, headaches, they can feel flu-like, they can have meningitis symptoms with the initial episode that's usually worse and thus requires a longer course of treatment than the recurrent outbreaks. And the opportunity for recurrence is lifelong. Correct. It's not something that can actually be eradicated. Correct. So going back to what you said earlier, 
we can suppress it and there are then strategies for controlling outbreaks to shorten them or recognizing when a patient might be more likely to have an outbreak. Yeah, so when patients take medicines for herpes, they can take it episodically just when they have the initial symptoms of an outbreak, which could be tingling even before they feel uh, one of the blisters coming on. Um, but if somebody's having more than a few outbreaks a year, or if they're having just a few, but those outbreaks are really bothersome, then rather than just treat for that one episode, we'll treat them suppressively, where they take one of the antiviral medicines for herpes every day, and those medicines are very well tolerated without a lot of side effects, and without a lot of resistance, though that does exist, um, and we'll just keep them on the, the herpes medicine to uh, keep the outbreaks away. The, another reason why, uh, especially couples may choose for one of the partners to uh, take herpes suppressive medication is if one of the partners has herpes and the other one doesn't. Um, they may wanna, if they've never had an outbreak, the negative partner may wanna have blood tests because they may unknowingly already have herpes, but if they're really negative for herpes, then one can have the partner with herpes take the medicines chronically to prevent transmission to the other partner. And there are two good reasons why that should really be considered. One is if uh, one of the partners has HIV, because HIV transmission is higher in the setting of active herpes outbreaks. And the other good reason is if a male partner has herpes and he has a female partner who is pregnant who has never had herpes, there is some risk to the female getting herpes close to the time of delivery and passing that on to the neonate. So in population who have herpes exposure and have had herpes episodes, are they at risk for always transmitting herpes, whether they have an outbreak or not? You're suggesting that if they're taking the suppressive dose that they're not gonna have an outbreak, that they're not able to transmit? Or? So the, the likelihood of transmission will go way down. It may not be zero, but it will go way down in the setting of taking the antiviral medicines. So as uh, somebody, as you said, who hasn't had herpes exposure, at least to their knowledge, should definitely avoid contact with a lesion. Again, prevention through condom use or just avoidance during the outbreak or? You know, both. It's best not to be sexually active during an outbreak, but patients also need to understand that there can be transmission even when there's not an outbreak and so condoms are important. There are some patients who have frequent outbreaks during periods of stress. I always use students who are studying for finals up all night and all of a sudden have outbreaks. So sometimes they can use the medication during stressful periods. They can, if, if, they, if they're particular stressors that usually bring on their outbreaks. But more of those folks, I would say we tend to just, if they know that they're predictably gonna get frequent outbreaks, we'll just keep them on the suppression rather than just take the medicine during a stressful period. And are there uh, any major health risks outside of the inconvenience of having an outbreak and the pain and discomfort? Any major issues associated with herpes besides a pregnant woman who's about to deliver? So there are 
rare cases of meningitis. I mentioned that with the first episode of herpes, but uh, herpes type two can cause a recurrent type of meningitis that some people are more prone to than others. That's one of, one of the more common ones. Rarely people can get herpes in the eye and it can cause a keratitis and some difficulties there. So if, if somebody with herpes has symptoms in the eye, that's important to see the ophthalmologist for. To distinguish between herpes that we're talking about, which is sexually transmitted, uh, and herpes zoster. Herpes zoster is not included in this category. Correct. That's shingles, which comes from the chickenpox virus. So even though herpes is a name, they're different diseases. Correct. They're all in the same family, but right. not the same virus. Great. I just want to make sure that people listening understand that. And again, there's uh, a way to diagnose herpes. Uh, you can swab the lesion. So we think traditionally used culture techniques. The, um, the culture's a little bit slow, and it's not as sensitive as newer techniques using PCR. So a lot of clinics have switched to using PCR on a swab from a swab specimen to diagnose the herpes. And then the blood tests do what? They tell you? The blood tests tell you if you have previously been exposed to one of these viruses. And we don't routinely recommend the blood tests. There are certain situations where it may be important and some people are just dying to know if they've had herpes. But on the, the flip side of that, getting a blood test when someone has no symptoms uh, that they would need to take medicines for sometimes causes anxiety in patients. And so I don't recommend doing that in every patient. So we're, we're a little more selective about when when's the right time to do that. And that takes a conversation between the doc and the patient. Yeah, to I figure can imagine it out. somebody picking up a potential life partner saying, I've never had it. I want you to go get a blood test and prove you've never had it. Mm-hmm. What if it comes back positive? What does that person do? Right. I mean, you, you, you must understand that you, you could pass on the herpes even with no symptoms, but it can, it can definitely cause some uh, more stress rather than less stress to get the tests. Now, get, getting tested for sexually transmitted infections, uh, just getting a full screening before starting a new relationship is a great idea. So getting HIV tested and uh, you know, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and so on. Um, syphilis screening is a great idea, in, especially in higher risk populations. So let's talk about at-risk populations. And then I also want to talk about the fact that uh, STDs are not exclusive to young people. <laughs> so uh, who's at high risk? So uh, anybody who has sex <laughs> is at <laughs> risk for sexually transmitted infection. Uh, for many of the STDs, and we've seen rates going up uh, significantly the past few years, especially for syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. Men who have sex with men are at higher risk for several of these sexually transmitted infections. So just general screening without symptoms is absolutely recommended for men who have sex with men at least once a year but up to every three months if they have ongoing high-risk behavior, multiple partners. For a heterosexual man, uh, that's really more symptom-driven, or if the patient requests it uh, for reasons that we discussed, starting a new relationship or, or other personal reasons, but not once a year at the general uh, physical visit with the uh, physician. Or somebody had an encounter and 
Absolutely, if they were uh, exposed, if they were contacted by another person, or if they were contacted by the health department, because often the, the information comes through the, the health department for contact tracing, that's definitely a reason to get screened and often treated if they were uh, a known exposure to one of these infections. Then we would look at older patients now as still being at risk. I remember reading about the amount of STDs being diagnosed out of nursing homes. So a little bit about the fact that just because you're older doesn't mean you're immune. Right, and it, it brings up the point that it's, it's important to talk to your patients about what their risk behaviors are, no matter what their age is or what their sexual preference is. It's important to talk about it so you can figure out who, who deserves screening. So check. Is there anything we haven't covered? I think the other thing to address with prevention is addressing what are the other risk factors. So having sex is a risk factor. Using drugs and having sex is a bigger risk factor. Often uh, some of the in increasing rates in some of these sexually transmitted infections is tied to either drug use or poverty and lack of access to healthcare, because if you have people with these infections and they don't get in and get tested and treated, then they're more likely to spread it to another person. And while you're bringing that up, I just went back to human papillomavirus. I, I'd like to emphasize to men that uh, there is a potential of uh, throat cancer. Uh, so they're thinking of, well, I don't have anything on my penis, but if they had had oral sex and been inoculated, we're now seeing a lot of the human papillomavirus cause a, a fairly, really devastating throat cancer, oral cancer. So uh, they need to be aware and be checked for that Correct. as well. And the main way to check is with a physical exam. Right. Uh, there's not a, um, a good protocol yet for just routine HPV testing at uh, at different sites like the throat. And another argument for young people getting vaccinated. Absolutely. Because yeah, we've seen a real rise in that. The ear, nose, and throat surgeons have seen an abundant amount of HPV-related throat cancers. Yes. Um, okay, well, let's talk about HIV. Again, isn't always sexually transmitted, but can be. Where are we in this day and age with HIV? Well, there, there's still new cases being diagnosed uh, every day in the United States. And the, um, you know, they've been looking for years for a vaccine. We don't have a vaccine yet. The, I would say the two biggest uh, things in preventing HIV now besides counseling is one, getting people with HIV into clinic and tested and on treatment right away because they're good data that if patients with HIV have undetectable HIV viral loads, meaning they take their medicines, it suppresses the HIV in the bloodstream, then they're not going to transmit it to somebody else. And there's still a lot of people out there with HIV who don't know it. So people should get tested for HIV, especially if they're risk factors, then get more frequent testing and get on treatment because that's going to prevent the spread. The other thing that's new in the past few years is what we call PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So if somebody's having high-risk sex, 
especially if it's higher sex with other men, if they have multiple partners, if they have partners of unknown HIV status, then um, they can be treated with a antiretroviral, one of the anti-HIV medicines to help prevent acquisition of HIV from a, a partner who might have HIV. And those studies show that it's very effective if you take the medicine. If you get the prescription, but don't take the pills, it's not gonna work. But if you actually take the pills, there's a good chance that that's going to help prevent HIV. Now, one thing that people have seen since we've been using PrEP is people can be very confident that they won't get anything. And the HIV PrEP medication won't prevent the other sexually transmitted diseases. It has some hepatitis B activity, but not won't prevent one from getting herpes or gonorrhea or chlamydia or syphilis. So they should still use condoms and get screened regularly for other S, uh, STIs. And uh, HIV is a blood test. Correct. And there is a subsequent, if you're at risk or somebody comes up negative after recent exposure, it takes a while sometimes for serial conversion. It does not as long as it used to. So the, the older tests, we didn't trust that they would turn positive soon after an exposure. And you know, weeks to months out, we would still worry that we could get a negative test, somebody who was really recently exposed and turned positive. The newest generation of HIV tests can pick it up within two to three weeks. But if there's any question that they're still in that window period where the regular HIV test won't pick up infection from a recent exposure, then we would do a different type of HIV test called a viral load test. And the uh, monitoring of HIV for somebody who's acquired it is fairly regular? It is. It's, you know, first people need to know that there are many good medications available for HIV now, and HIV care is uh, dramatically different than it was 20 years ago when people had to take a handful of medicines to help control it. A lot of HIV patients can be treated with a regimen that has one pill once a day. Often there are three medicines in the one pill, but it's much easier to take than it used to be, and, and it can work pretty well in most patients. So we just need to get all, all the patients who don't know that they have HIV into clinic so we can get those folks treated too to help prevent them from getting sick and, and prevent spreading the infection to other people. And it, in some instances, be non-sexually transmitted. Like we said, it isn't always an STD exposure type of inoculation. Correct. So, so. if somebody is uh, sharing needles with another person who has HIV, they can get HIV that way. And so there are other preventive measures such as needle exchange programs and treating the people with HIV, which will help prevent the transmission. And then uh, you, you mentioned hepatitis B briefly, not typically something that people put together with STDs, but again, runs in the same circle sometimes. Correct. And, and hepatitis B is actually easier to transmit than HIV, both sexually and from a blood exposure. Now, there is a vaccine available and it's been available for over 30 years. And all young people 
and all people who anticipate having new sexual partners in their life really should get a hepatitis B vaccine, which is quite effective. So in uh, looking at our STD world, uh, somebody who hasn't acquired it, but is taking on a new partner, advice? It never hurts to get screened <laughs> so, and, 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 to, and to check your immunizations. And we've now our, um, our kids who are seen by pediatricians and those who agree to get their vaccines, which we hope most do, they get both hepatitis B and hepatitis A vaccines. And, and hepatitis A can be sexually transmitted as well. It's usually the foodborne hepatitis, which has a fecal oral route of exposure rather than from blood or sex. But if somebody's engaging in rectal sex or oral rectal exposure, they can get hepatitis A. So all gay men should get hepatitis A vaccine in addition to hepatitis B vaccine. And um, then also just uh, have an honest talk with your partner. Correct. And with your healthcare practitioner. Absolutely. Don't hide things. Correct. And, and, and that conversation goes two ways. The patient coming in to the medical visit should share things, but the physicians and other providers should always ask because you're not going to get the information or figure out what the person's risk factors are if you don't ask. Excellent. You could pass on perhaps something where the listening audience could go to for resources, where some really good resources, um, public health and so the CDC website has a lot of information about sexually transmitted diseases. Their website is cdc.gov, and you can click on whichever or type in whichever uh, STD you want information about, but that's extremely helpful. Most state and local health departments have public health clinics, and often there's good information online. King County Public Health, uh, where we live, has, has a really good website for sexually transmitted diseases. For some of the viral diseases and especially herpes, the University of Washington has a viral disease research clinic and they have great herpes information and information about studies online. So I don't know that actual website, but if you look for University of Washington viral disease research clinic, that's a great resource for herpes. And then somebody who's concerned, they're a local practitioner, but there are also public health clinics that they can go to. Correct. To and they're screen. often walk-in clinics, have a sliding scale for payments, and the, the best place to go for a STD screen is a place you can get into quickly and a place that's going to do the appropriate screening and a place where you're comfortable talking to the provider. Well, I appreciate your sharing the information with us and spending time. Dr. Schwartz, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. This completes another podcast chapter of the Washington State Urology Society's original Guide to Men's Health. This is Dr. Richard Pellman reminding you to take care of yourself. The Washington State Urology Society wishes to thank all contributors who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The Society also wishes to thank... Sean Fox for his invaluable technical assistance. Music theme, San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. Dave Whiting. The podcasts are the property of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the express consent of the society is strictly prohibited. For more information about men's health, visit wsus.org.
or visit your physician or care provider.